Hey everyone, I'm Zach. I'm the lead pastor here at Restore. Thanks so much for checking out this week's podcast. I hope that it encourages you and inspires you, and I hope that you have some community around you to talk through these truths and concepts with. If you don't have community like that, we would love to invite you to be a part of Restore. You can get all the information about our church at restoreaustin.org. We would love to see you soon at one of our Sunday gatherings, and we hope you enjoy this week's podcast. As you saw from that video that played just now, we are in a series called New Normal. And why we name this series New Normal really doesn't need any explanation, right? Our lives are different than they were a couple of months ago. Not just a little bit different, but like really, really drastically different. The first half of that video talks about that. It, it shows images of that. It depicts some of the major changes we've experienced as businesses closed, people getting sick, others wearing masks, and most of us just constantly refreshing our feeds to try to get the latest updates and news. But the second half of the video, the second half tells a different story, a story about some things that have remained the same, not just during the time of COVID-19, but for thousands of years. Things like the church and the scriptures, prayer, the bread and the wine that comes with communion and our connection with each other. Through 2,000 years of wars and exiles and famines and persecutions and plagues and yes, even pandemics, regardless of where they were or what was happening around them, the core practices of the church have remained the same. From the first church in the first century to our church in the 21st century, these core elements these four things have been practiced. Acts 2.42 lists them. They devoted themselves, it says, the first church, to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to the breaking of bread and to prayer. So we decided to spend an entire series looking at these practices, not just because they give us a picture of what the church should be doing, but also because they connect us to all those who have come before our brothers and sisters have navigated incredibly difficult circumstances for centuries by relying on Jesus and practicing these very same things. There's this park near our house that my wife and I like to take our boys for walks and to just kind of get out of the house, especially during times like these. And it has these long gravel trails that are all around it that we walk on. But every hundred yards or so, there are also these footpaths that break off in different directions through the woods or through the fields. These footpaths, they weren't made by big trucks or, or heavy machines. They were made by thousands of people walking on them over and over and over again. And it's crazy, but many times the footpaths are actually even smoother than the gravel trails made by the trucks. These practices that we're talking about the apostles' teaching, prayer, fellowship, breaking bread. These are like footpaths through the woods. Our sisters and brothers have walked them so many times that it's become easier for us to navigate. We can step into them and, and we can look in front of us and we can see their footsteps. The paths, they have smoothed down before us and we can be reminded that no matter what is happening around us, no matter the circumstances that we're in, we can keep walking forward in faith too because that's what we've always done as the church for thousands and thousands of years. We can know today in this new normal that we are not alone. We are united with each other and we are united with all those who have come before us. The last two weeks, we've talked about how we are united together through the practice of prayer and then the practice of fellowship. This week, we're looking at what Acts 2.42 calls the apostles' teaching. 
I think that uh, phrase is probably the, the least easily understood of the four that are listed, but the apostles were simply the men and women appointed by God to lead the church. We're most familiar with like the Apostle Peter and the Apostle Paul who feature prominently in the book of Acts that we're looking at and then throughout the rest of the New Testament, but there were many apostles in our story. Mary Magdalene is often called the apostle to the apostles for her role in proclaiming the resurrection to the other leaders in the church. Jesus' brother, James, was also an apostle who helped lead the church in Jerusalem. A woman named Junia was an apostle in the Roman church who Paul referred to as outstanding among all the apostles. The list goes on and on. But the practice we are talking about today is much less concerned with who the apostles were and much more concerned with what the apostles were teaching. Because after all, it doesn't say that the first church devoted themselves to the apostles, right? It says that they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. So what were the apostles teaching? Some call it the gospel. That's a a word that many of us have heard if you have church background or church experience. Some call it the good news of Jesus. That's literally what gospel means. Some just call it the story. But regardless of the label, the apostles simply taught about Jesus Christ. As a scholar on the book of Acts named Alan Thompson says, Apostolic preaching focuses on God's plans and purposes and culminates in the accomplishments of his saving purposes in the death and resurrection of Christ. The good news or gospel was about what God had done in the historical events of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. Depending on how you count, there are between 15 and 20 of these teachings recorded in the book of Acts. In fact, these teachings account for over one-third of all the words in the book. The apostles' teaching about the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus is a major, major theme, not just here in Acts, but throughout the entirety of the New Testament. But instead of skipping around and kind of highlighting all of the major teachings, I want to just focus in on one. And it's found in the same chapter that we've been looking at, Acts chapter 2, and it's actually the very first one of these apostles' teachings that we have. So let me set the scene for us. Jesus has risen from the dead and appeared to his disciples, and it's during his last moments with them that he says these famous words from Acts 1.8. He says, you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Those would actually be the last words that he speaks to them because moments later, Jesus ascends into heaven and the angels tell us that just like he went up, he's coming back again someday to finish his great mission, his work of restoration in the world. So now led by the apostle Peter, the disciples, the followers of Jesus get together with Mary and more than 100 other men and women who were followers of Christ and they just pray and they wait for the Holy Spirit to come. Remember, Jesus had been promising the Holy Spirit for a while. In John 14, 16, he told his disciples, I'm going to ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate to help you and be with you forever, the Spirit of truth. The world cannot accept him because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him, for he lives with you and will be in you. Jesus told the disciples back then, he lives with you now, but there's going to come a day when the Spirit will be in you. And a short time later, y'all, that one day, that magnificent day arrives. As they were all gathered together praying, it happens. Acts chapter 2, verse 1. 
When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Suddenly, like the sound of a a blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. This is one of the most significant events in the history of the world. It is the moment that God goes from living just among his people to living in his people. Moments later, the apostle Peter goes out into the street and preaches this very first sermon. Y'all, this is the first apostle's teaching that I mentioned earlier, and it's such a huge moment. It's a huge moment. I'm so excited. Are you ready to hear? Are you ready to hear what Peter has to say? I'm just pretending that you're all nodding at home as I say that. Are you ready to hear what Peter has to say in this very first sermon? Okay, here we go. Verse 14. Then Peter stood up with the 11, raised his voice and addressed the crowd. Fellow Jews and all of you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I have to say. Y'all, this is going to be good. I'm telling you, just like brace yourselves. This is the beginning. This is the opener of the very first apostles teaching. Peter's about to drop some serious gospel on them. Here we go. Bring it, Peter. Here's what he says. These people are not drunk. As you suppose, it's only nine in the morning. These people are not drunk. As you suppose, it's only nine in the morning. This is why I hate not being in the room with you all. Because I'm just imagining that when you hear that that is the very first line of the very first sermon in history, that you are like rolling on the floor. Peter is such a preaching legend, man. Like he opens the very first church sermon ever with like a, hey, it's morning, they're probably not drunk joke. Truly an inspiration to me and to pastors everywhere. Okay, but let me put this in context for us. Back to verse four and what happens right before Peter stands up and he preaches this sermon when the Holy Spirit comes down. It says, all of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now there were, staying in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. When they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment because each one, this is important, each one heard their own language being spoken. Utterly they amazed. They asked, aren't all those who are speaking Galileans? Then how is it that each of us hears them in our native language? Parthians, Medes, Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia. I'm messing these up now. We're just going to go through it though. Egypt and the parts of Libya near Cyrene. Visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs. Here's the important part. We hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. Y'all, even though these people didn't speak the same language, the Holy Spirit supernaturally enables the first church to speak so that every single person hearing can understand. Now put yourselves in the shoes of the people listening to this. You're from some other country, just hanging out on the streets of Jerusalem, right? Maybe eating some local food, drinking some kosher coffee. I don't know what you're doing, but all of a sudden you hear commotion coming from nearby, It sounds like a bunch of people yelling, right? So you you jump up, you run over there, and as you arrive, you notice everyone is talking at the same time. But instead of just utter gibberish, it's actually your own language. And instead of a commotion, the communication is crystal clear. You are listening to someone describe the wonders of God, his grace and his hope and his love in the language of your hometown. They reacted like probably you or I would. Verse 12. Amazed and perplexed, they asked one another, what does this mean? 
Some, however, made fun of them and said, they have had too much wine. These folks do what a lot of us do, and we experience something that's seemingly supernatural. They, they, they just kind of shrug it off. They make jokes, right? Now, change with me for a second. Put yourself in the shoes of the very first church. They've been waiting and praying. They have just received the Holy Spirit and kind of put themselves out there, right? They go out into the street speaking in tongues. They, they put themselves out there only to be mocked by the people that they're talking to. They're probably embarrassed. They're, they're probably even a little bit hurt. And at this point, the first church could have just turned around, right? They could have just gone back to their prayer room, huddled together without ever risking those feelings of hurt or embarrassment again. Should be like, I'm done. But thank God that's not what they do. And that's not what Peter does either. How does Peter respond? He doesn't, he doesn't claim persecution, right? He doesn't get mad. He doesn't lead everyone from the church, first church back to home to pout. He doesn't go on Facebook talk about how everyone's out to get him because he's a Christian. He makes a joke. He says, y'all, we can't be drunk. It's only 9 a.m. Listen, Peter could have been a jerk here. He could have picked up his ball and gone home, but he doesn't. He makes a joke. And after that, Peter has their attention. He's earned the right to be heard by them. You see, being a Christian doesn't earn us the right to be heard by people. Even if we believe that we have the truth, the greatest message, the good news, that doesn't guarantee us an audience. We need to earn the right to be heard by people. And we can do that in a variety of ways, but I'm telling you, it always starts with not being a jerk, with being kind to people, with listening to people. Now that Peter has their attention, here's what he says. And remember, this is the very first apostles' teaching. It sets the tone for the message carried forward from this point to really our day today for the church. This is the very first one. Peter starts by going right into a prophecy about that very day, the day of Pentecost, from the Old Testament book of Joel. Verse 16, here's what he says. This is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Even on my ser servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days and they will prophesy. Did you catch that? This is really important. The Holy Spirit is poured out and given to everyone regardless of age or gender or class or anything like that. Now, this would have been outrageous to this patriarchal society where only men of a certain age and a certain socioeconomic status had rights and standing. We just saw people from all different nations, right, invited into the family of God in their own language. Now, Peter is saying that, that men and women, young and old, rich and poor, every race, every ethnicity are welcome in this radically inclusive family called the church. This is a huge turning point, not just in church history, but in world history, y'all. By this point, I'm sure you've all seen what happened to Ahmad Arbery. This unarmed black man was jogging through a neighborhood in Georgia in February when he was hunted down and murdered by two white guys who said he, quote, fit the description of a burglar they'd seen. Given the foundation of full equality and recognizing the image of God in every person handed down to us from the first church, y'all, the modern church should be leading the charge and fighting for people like Ahmad, fighting for justice, fighting against every form of racism, 
that exists in our country. This is not a political issue. This is a Jesus issue. Because you see, Jesus created a radically inclusive family to be his hands and feet here on earth as he brings restoration to all the brokenness in this world. Brokenness like white supremacy. Brokenness like racism which is a slap in the face to our creator God who made every person in his image. Marginalizing someone because of the color of their skin or anything else about them is anti-Christ. And it's the opposite of what the first church did. And it's the opposite of what the church should be doing now. We've been saying this every week, but it's such a vital part of understanding the first church. So I'm going to say it again. The Holy Spirit is the great equalizer. Because the Holy Spirit doesn't care who you are or what you've done or where you come from or what color you are. The Holy Spirit only cares about one qualification. That's in verse 21. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Everyone who places their faith in Jesus is saved. Everyone who calls on the name of Jesus receives the Holy Spirit. It's simple, but it's profound, and it has lasting impacts not just for us personally, but for us as a church and the ways that we conduct ourselves in the world. So back to the story. Put yourself back in the crowd of people. You've just heard the commotion, drew your attention over to this group of people. When you got there, you heard the wonders of God being proclaimed in your own language, even though no one else around you speaks it. Then a guy gets up. He starts to talk about this new civilization, this, this new family where anyone and everyone can be saved and receive freedom, no matter who you are or what you've done. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. This is the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. You're in the crowd. You're, you're hearing this for the first time. If I'm in the crowd listening to this, I'm in, right? This is a, a, a no-brainer. I've never experienced something like this, a place where I can come, call on the name of Jesus and, and be saved and experience salvation and wholeness and acceptance and family, maybe like I've never experienced before. I would be left with two questions. Number one, who is this Lord? And number two, how do I call on his name? Who is this Lord and how do I call on his name? You see, Peter had said, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So who, who is this Lord and how do I call on his name? And maybe they asked those questions out loud. Maybe they, they shouted up to Peter, or, or maybe he just knew they were coming. But either way, Peter goes right into a crystal clear presentation of who Jesus is and what it means to call on his name. Verse 22. Fellow Israelites, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know. This man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of lawless men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. A quick pause here. I love this wordplay from Peter. Do you know who these lawless men are that he's talking about? They are the teachers of the law, the, the Pharisees, the religious leaders of the time. Their job was literally to keep the Old Testament law and to make sure everyone else kept it too. And yet, their hearts were so hardened by their own pride, their own morality, their own selfish gain, that they didn't recognize the law being fulfilled right in front of them by the person of Jesus. These men that were charged with keeping the law actually turn out to be the most lawless of them all. 
They essentially carry out the murder of Jesus because they're so worried about their own selves and their own stature and their own selfish gain. But then we have the very best two-word phrase in all of the Bible, right? But God. They had just killed Jesus, but God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. God has raised this Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses of it. Exalted to the right hand of God, he has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and has poured it out what you now see and hear. The earthly courts said that Jesus was guilty and they put him to death, but the heavenly courts overruled. God raised Jesus from the dead and exalted him to the highest place. Now, Peter says this stuff that you hear around you, uh, the, the speaking that is happening in your own language, even though nobody speaks your language, this is the working of the Holy Spirit of Jesus that has come to give life and life abundantly. So what does that make Jesus? Verse 36, Peter says it clearly. Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. There it is. There's the answer to our first question. Who is this Lord? He is Jesus. Peter says, you can be sure of this. God has made Jesus both Lord and Christ. These are two important words here. Christ literally translates to the chosen one. Jesus is the chosen one who the prophets have been talking about for thousands and thousands of years. Generations of people have been waiting for. He's the Messiah. He is the Savior. And then Lord simply means that he is God. It means that everything said about God in the scriptures applies to Jesus and that Jesus is the fullest manifestation of God we have ever seen. Later in scripture, it says that the divine dwelt in fullness in Jesus Christ. He is both Lord and Christ. So Peter answers that first question and then they come right at him with the second one, verse 37. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and they said to Peter and the other apostles, brothers, what must we do? They're saying, well, how do we call in his name? What must we do? Peter replied, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. Now, I want to pause and say something else here. If you, if you read verse 38, kind of without the context of the rest of scriptures, you, you could be led to believe that baptism in addition to repentance is, is a part of salvation. It is not. Baptism is the natural outflowing of salvation. It's the outward sign of the inward change. It's the way that we announce our faith in Jesus to the rest of the world, but it's not necessary for salvation. We know this for many reasons. I'm not going to go into all of them, but there are a couple of major ones. Number one, there are people we know that are in heaven with Christ that were never baptized, the most famous being the thief on the cross next to him who Jesus says, today you'll be with me in paradise. And number two, many other verses in scripture describe what is necessary for salvation and don't mention baptism. See, baptism was and it still is the act of publicly proclaiming your faith in Jesus. It's important, it matters, we practice it all the time here at Restore. But a better understanding, perhaps even a better reading in the original language of this verse is repent and then be baptized is, is actually better said, place your faith in Jesus and then announce it to the world. Repent and then be baptized. So back to the original point. We have our two questions answered. Number one, who is this Lord? He is Jesus. Number two, how do I call on his name? We repent. Now I get it. I get that the word repent carries a lot of baggage with it for us today. When I hear it, I usually think of 
like street preachers yelling, repent from your wicked ways into megaphones at people walking by. Or I think of protesters carrying signs that say, repent from your sins or you're gonna go to hell. But as difficult as it might be, I'm gonna ask you to set aside that baggage you carry and look at the beauty of this word with me. See, the word repent in the Bible literally translates to to change one's mind. That's what repent means, to change one's mind. Repentance isn't primarily about changing your behavior. It's about changing your mind. This is how it's used all throughout the Bible. When John the Baptist is preaching at the beginning of the New Testament, he says, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He's not saying change your behavior. The kingdom of heaven is here. That makes no sense. At this point, people believe that God's kingdom was way far off, way in the future. But John is saying, no, change your mind. The kingdom of heaven is here now. Here in Acts 2, Peter just finished reminding the people in the crowd what they believed about Jesus. They partnered with lawless men. They put him to death. They believed that he was a liar. They chose to believe the religious leaders instead of the son of God. Peter is saying here, Jesus wasn't lying. It's the religious leaders who have been lying to us all along. Jesus was telling the truth, and we know that because he rose from the dead just like he said he was going to. So repent. Change your mind about Jesus because only then will you experience salvation. Don't make changing your behavior a requirement for salvation. Peter never did. Paul never did. The first church never did. And most importantly, Jesus never did. Changing our behavior or maybe more appropriately, becoming more and more like the Jesus we follow, it comes after we place our faith in Jesus and receive the Holy Spirit. We've flipped the order Listen, we don't clean up and then come to Jesus. We come to Jesus and then he cleans us up. We don't clean up and then come to Jesus. We come to Jesus and then he cleans us up. This is the scandalous and beautiful news of the gospel, of the story, of the apostles' teaching that connects us for thousands of years all together. Romans 10.9 puts it this way. If you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. It doesn't say if you declare with your mouth, believe with your heart, and then change all your bad behavior. Thank God it doesn't say that because if it did, none of us could participate in salvation. I love this verse because I love how perfectly Romans 10.9 answers our two questions from earlier. Who is this Lord? Declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord. How do I call on his name? Repent, change your mind, and believe that he has been raised from the dead. This is the apostles' teaching that has been passed down to us from the first church. This is the story that unites us all, the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus. And like Acts 2.42 says about the first church, we have been called to devote ourselves to this story, to devote ourselves to this story, devote ourselves to the gospel. What does it look like? to devote ourselves to the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. I think it simply means that we're called to embrace the story and we're called to share the story. Embrace the story and share the story. Embracing it means making up our minds about Jesus. Like we just talked about this idea of repentance, specifically his life, death, and resurrection. Is he who he says he was? Is he really fully God and fully man? Did he really come to the earth and spend his perfect life loving people radically? Did he really die on the cross? Did he really overcome death and rise? 
from the grave? Is he really the hope of the world and the means of salvation for all people? These are the claims made by Jesus and by the scriptures that record his life, death, and resurrection. And they are big claims. My question for you this morning is, have you embraced this story? Have you made up your mind about Jesus? If not, what's, what's holding you back? I wanna tell you that if it's a feeling of not being good enough, of not being accepted, if you've been told by someone who claimed to be a Christian or was a church leader or something like that, that because of something about who you are, what you've done, your background, your lifestyle, or something like that, that you are not welcome, you do not have a place, you have been lied to. And I'm sorry that that happened. I'm deeply sorry. But you don't change everything. You don't clean up and then come to Jesus. You come to the open arms of Jesus just as you are. Because, man, he loves you more than you could ever imagine. He cares for you more than you've ever been cared for before. Not some future idealized version of you. He loves you just as you are right now. He wants you in his family. So make up your mind about Jesus. Embrace this story. Because I'm telling you, embracing this story and simultaneously being embraced by Jesus and his church is the best thing that's ever happened to me. And I want it. I want it for you too. And I hope you don't hear me saying that like, we can't be friends if you don't do this. Or even that you can't be a part of Restore and keep coming to our gatherings if, if you don't embrace this story. If you aren't there yet, I get it. I understand. But I'm telling you that it's the best thing that ever happened to me. And because I care about you, I want it for you. If you haven't embraced the story yet, make today the day. Make today the day. Now, if you've already embraced it, it's time to share it not some watered-down version of it, but the radically inclusive and scandalous truth of it, that no matter who anybody is or what anybody has done, they are fully loved by God, and he is offering them life abundantly. That people don't have to figure everything out or clean everything up. They just have to make up their mind about Jesus. Don't add something to this story when you share it, like a change of behavior that was never a part of it. Don't explicitly or implicitly tell someone they are excluded from embracing the story because of something about them. Like I said earlier, Peter never did that. Paul never did that. The first church never did that. And most importantly, Jesus never did that. Look, I know this sounds harsh, but I'm telling you as a brother who loves you, when you add something to this story or you try to keep someone from embracing it because of something about them, you are standing in direct opposition to Jesus, because that is the opposite of what he wants to do in this world through his church. He wants everyone to come saving knowledge of who he is. He wants everyone to embrace this story. So that's my challenge for us today. Embrace this story and share this story because it's too wonderful to push aside and it's too amazing to keep to ourselves. Let me pray. God, thank you for this morning. Thank you for the story. Thank you for the truth of the story. 
Thank you that Jesus is who he says he was, that just like we're about to sing, that these understandings of who Jesus is, what he did, have united us in the very beginning. This song we're gonna sing in a minute about the, the, based on the creeds, God, that have existed for, for literally thousands of years, these things, this story that has united us together, God. Thank you for the story. Thank you that you did not sit up in heaven and look down on a broken and dying world and, and say, ah, they deserve it, even though we did. Thank you that you didn't look down and say, ah, I'm just gonna let them try to figure it out because you knew we never could but that you put on flesh as Jesus and you came in to the brokenness of this world and started to bring healing and restoration and hope and salvation like never before. You gave us this story. Now you've called us to embrace it and to share it. So I pray that we would take that very seriously today. That we would embrace this story, especially if we've never done so. And that we would begin sharing it, the real, beautiful, scandalous version of it with the world around us. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Now before I turn it back over to Matt and Ashley and Evan to lead us in worship, I want to let you know about something really special that we're doing next Sunday. If you know, we do our online gatherings every Sunday morning right here at 10 a.m. Next Sunday is actually the last week of this new normal series, and we're talking about the first church practice of breaking bread. And breaking bread was what the early church called communion. This thing that if you've been a part of church, you've done in a myriad of ways, maybe with crackers and grapes or maybe with bread and wine or whatever it's looked like. So next week, we're gonna talk about communion, but we're not just gonna talk about it. We're actually gonna take communion together online in a really special way. So get whatever you have around your house, bread, wine, juice, crackers, grapes, whatever it is, because what we're gonna do is we're gonna take it together online at the same time. But here's the really cool part. We're gonna challenge all of you to take a picture of your communion. Maybe it's just you, maybe it's your family, maybe it's just the elements, maybe it's all of you gathered around a table together. Take that picture and then the week that we are back in person, I don't know when that's gonna be, but when we are back together in person at the middle school, we are gonna take communion together as a family around big, beautiful tables and we're gonna put all those pictures up on the screen and we're gonna remember this. That's what communion is. It's remembering the story. Not just back 2,000 years ago, but what the story is still doing, what Jesus is still doing today. So over the next week, grab some elements, get it together, take that picture, post it next week and we are going to celebrate together next week and then the week that we all come back together. So now let's worship together.